As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. My name is Brenda, and welcome to Horrifying History, where you will hear about the unexplained, paranormal, and supernatural happenings that have stained the pages of history. A little while ago, the host of the podcast Misty Mysteries reached out to us to ask us to appear on their Halloween episode, but then they had an even better idea. Why not do a crossover episode and release it the same day as a Halloween gift for everyone who listens to both of our shows? Now, my dear listeners, you guys know that I love Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. You can dress up however you want without getting arrested. You can get candy. And now you guys get two episodes of Horrifying History today. So buckle up, friends. This is going to be a fun one. Welcome to our first crossover episode, and Happy Halloween! As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Keely. I'm the host of the podcast, Misty Mysteries. Misty Mysteries is a paranormal and true crime podcast. Every week, I post two episodes, one true crime and one paranormal episode. On my true crime episodes, which is where the podcast started, I focus on unsolved homicide cases and missing persons cases. During these episodes, I like to tell you about who the victim was, who they were in life, what they did, who they loved, and truly just how they lived their lives. I've been very lucky to work with the families of some of the victims and have been able to tell you stories directly from their families. But when it comes to my paranormal episodes, I like to call them Spooky Sundays. I have a little bit more fun. I like to tell you the spooky stories behind paranormal event that is happening, the paranormal investigators, and also bring a little bit of science and skepticism to that topic. I had so much fun recording with Brenda from Horrifying Histories, and I hope you guys enjoyed the episode that we have put together for you for Halloween. So let's jump into our stories. This week, I will be talking about the Axeman of New Orleans, better known as America's own Bayou Jack the Ripper. Uh, the first victim of the killers were an Italian grocer named Joseph Mago and his wife, Catherine. On May 23, 1918, the couple was sleeping in their apartment that was right above their store where the killer broke into their home. He cut their throats with a straight razor and then beat them with the axe, bashing in their skulls. When the police arrived on scene of the crime, they noticed the killer left his bloody clothes in the couple's apartment, believing he changed into a clean set of clothes since no one had reported any naked men walking around. There weren't any signs of a robbery, and not too far from the home was a message in chalk saying, Miss Joseph Mago will sit up tonight just write Miss Tony. With lack of evidence in the apartment and no one knowing who wrote the message, the murders went unsolved, seemingly almost like a random attack, until a month later on June 27, 1918. Louis and his girlfriend Harriet lived in the back area of a grocery store Louis owned. When the time came to open the store, no one did and the town people got worried. Louie and Harriet were found lying in a pool of their own blood by a baker delivering to the store. Louie with a blow from the axe right above his right temple and Harriet with a blow above her left ear. Both were badly injured but survived the attack. Harriet had facial paralysis on one side of her face which required multiple surgeries and seven weeks later on August 5th, 1918, Harriet passed away after one final surgery. On the same day that Harriet passed away, the killer had attacked an eight-month pregnant woman named Miss Schneider. Miss Schneider was laying in her bed when she woke up to a dark figure of a man standing over her. The killer attacked her with an axe. He hit her face, leaving her scalp cut open and covered in blood. She was found by her husband later that night while returning home from work. 
she was rushed to the hospital where she survived and actually gave birth to her baby two days after the attack. The attack on Ms. Schneider was linked to the two previous attacks. The next attack happened just five days later on August 10th, 1918, when a grocer named Joseph Romano took a blow to the head. Joseph was a 90-year-old man who shared a home with his two nieces. They could hear him struggling in the room when they went in and they saw a man fleeing. Their uncle, bleeding from his attack, was able to walk himself to the ambulance. Sadly, he passed away two days after in the hospital due to severe head trauma. His nieces described the attacker to the police as a heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouch hat. The citizens of New Orleans now started to fear for their safety with four separate attacks by a man who used axes found at the victims' homes. The citizens reported their axes being tampered with, along with their windows, doors, and even seen a man at night walking. Men of the homes would take turns staying up all night with their shotguns in order to protect their families. But with everyone on high alert, the attack seemed to stop and things slowly went back to normal. Till March 10th, 1919, when Charles, his wife Rosie, and their two-year-old daughter Mary were attacked in their home by the killer in the early mornings, a neighbor was able to hear screaming coming from their home, and when he walked in, he found Charles lying on the floor in his own blood and Rosie standing in the doorway holding Mary, who had passed away. Rosie woke up to Charles struggling with a large man holding the axe. When Charles fell to the ground, the killer then attacked Rosie and Mary. Charles and Rosie both survived, but sadly Mary did pass away. The citizens of New Orleans were once again terrified for their lives and their families. The police stated they believed one man had done all five attacks, calling him a bloodthirsty maniac, filled with passion for human slaughter. For the first time on March 14, 1919, the killer spoke to the citizens of New Orleans through a letter in the Times newspaper that read, Esteemed mortals, they have never caught me, they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you, New Orleans and foolish police call the axe man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clues except my bloody axe. Just smeared with blood, brains, and whoever I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as not to amuse me. But his satanic majesty, Francis, Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it is better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning for I feel sure the police will dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you New Orleans think of me as the most horrible murderer 
which I am, but I could not be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night at will. I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am close relations with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday, March 19th, 1919, I am going to pass over New Orleans in the infinite mercy I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether legions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in. A full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain that is that some of you people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tarius, it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping thou with publish this, that I may go with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in the fact or realm of fantasy, the axe man. The night of March 19, 1919, was filled with music playing from homes all over New Orleans. Dance halls filled full of people, jazz bands, both amateur and professional, played at people's homes and parties. That night, no one was murdered by the Axeman. All was quiet from the killer till he struck again on August 10, 1919. A grocer by the name of Steve Boca was asleep in his bed when he woke up to a figure standing over him in bed. He was struck with an axe where he lost consciousness, but when he came to, he was able to run to his neighbor before collapsing in front of him. He survived the attack, but couldn't remember much from the attack. The killer struck three more times, two of them only one day apart on September 2nd, 1919. The killer went after a pharmacist named William Carson who escaped the attack by shooting at the killer, who then ran out of the home, breaking a door in his process. On September 3, 1919, after the failed attack on William Carson, the killer went after a young woman named Sarah. The woman lived alone, and when her neighbors went to go check on her, they found her lying unconscious in her bed. Sarah survived the attack with several missing teeth and a concussion. The last attack happened on October 27, 1919, when the killer broke into the home of Mike Pepitone that he shared with his wife and six kids. Mike was in the bedroom when his wife heard a weird noise coming from the bedroom. She opened the door to find a large man with an axe fleeing from the bedroom. Mike was struck in the head with the axe and passed away. His wife has never been able to identify or make out any details of the killer. On every scene, the killer left two clues, a panel on the back door that was chiseled away, and he always left the murder weapon which belonged to the victims. Even though authorities continued to work on the case of the Axeman in New Orleans, a killer who killed six people and attacked six more and terrorized the city for over a year, they can never find who committed these horrible attacks, leaving it a notorious unsolved case. So I would like to kind of ex- talk about the case a little bit with you as well, because I know you covered it 
and you did bring up good points about the well, Pepitones. Well, actually, there's a couple different points that I want to make a uh, make is when I started researching this case myself for the episode we did, the first thing that came very, very clear is the race was a deciding factor in this. There was a lot of racism at that time, especially to the Italian uh, community that immigrated in. And it's it's very interesting to see that pretty well everyone that was attacked was an Italian person who started to gain prominence within their area, Uh, most of them being grocers, one of them being the pharmacist, but they also had a store attached. The second thing that I actually just picked up now when I was listening to you tell the story is, and I thought of this before, is the actual education base of the the killer himself. Because when you're hearing his writings, it's actually very in, embellished. It's not the word, but it's it's not of the times. If a lot of people didn't necessarily go to high school and college back then, so his yeah. writing style and his punctuation, everything that he used, was showing that he was educated. But also the fact that he was using the word Tartarus, for example, Tartarus is is in Greek mythology is hell. So I yeah, because that word went over my head. Right. So like, <laughs> uh, Tartarus. Well, if you if you watch per, or read the Percy Jackson books, you'll know what Tartarus is. Uh, but because uh, they tell about Tartarus all the time. But the point of it is, it sounds like that this guy was educated, right? Which yeah. I find is very unusual that he would attack people who are immigrants at that time who are starting to do well. It just kind of almost shows the ideology and mindset of the times, but also the fact that basically his condition that he gave was play jazz music, right? Um, okay. And uh, play jazz music. It's not necessarily that he said he was a fan, but it makes you kind of wonder what 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 was going on in this guy's mind at that time. You know, did he just like to party or what? Well, why would he go and say, if you play jazz that night, uh, I won't attack anybody. It just seems a little off, right? Yeah, that's one thing is, if you notice, I kind of giggled at the jazz it up part. That's mm-hmm. just because I watched BuzzFeed Unsolved. So they like, <laughs> <laughs> and so and when I read that part, it like went that little joke went through my head. I was like, oh, it feels a little inappropriate, but it, it's funny to me. I was like, jazz it up. It's such an interesting term he used there. Yeah, and 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 again, like going back to when you go and look at the, his writings. It's, it shows a higher level of education, which brings me to even Jack the Ripper. Some people think that because of how he did his murders and the letters he wrote that he is a, a higher stature. But what actually other people believe is no, not because of how he, he actually could have been a butcher or even less, but that they don't even believe necessarily that he wrote those letters. So that is another thing that's very interesting to me is, is did the jazz man actually write that letter or did somebody else try to get some fame on the side? We'll never know. Yeah. One thing I found interesting about him is how many attacks he did and how many people survived. Mm-hmm. And so, who uh, survived? Yeah. Because that's one thing, the, the Ms. Schneider, I was, like, impressed. Because she mm-hmm. gave birth, like, two days later. Okay, that, injured. that, she's like a superwoman there. That chick is a superwoman. Yeah. But it actually, I, I it, it also, again, that's very shows the times he always seemed to attack he only did one attack that was a single person he uh, he yeah. attacked couples and uh, in those days you know and even today you know the man defends his wife so it would make logical sense that they would be more injured or die and the women would survive but it just made me so sad that he just this guy went after a kid 
if a, if, yeah. what he, if what his true intentions was a racist based, I can see it. But if it was a, a financial base, you know, like these guys are starting to do good and I don't really like it all that much. It doesn't make sense to go after wife and children. It, it really doesn't. So there's just so many questions and so many ways to look at it. And also the bias that happened in the investigations. A lot of it was because the police are like, oh, well, it's just the Italian people. We don't really need to look into it that much, which delayed the a lot of the investigations and pulling this all together as a serial killer. But also was it interfighting with in the community themselves. And when the baby died, um, the mother just started pointing fingers at the people she didn't yeah. like. And, and, and she went after the neighbors. She went after the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And because she had a problem with the neighbors, and it was years later that she's like, yeah, my bad, shouldn't have done that. I know it wasn't him all along. Like that, that just shows you the times and how much confusion happened because of all these killings. And, and what happens is, and it happens today, when there's a killer on the loose, people panic. You know, they see everybody, they're hiding behind my garbage cans in the backyard. And people start making a lot of presumptions and don't necessarily look at facts. And one thing also with Harriet and Louie is I noticed everything said mistress. Yes. I preferred to put girlfriend because to me, mistress is such like a mean I, word because I didn't feel like he wasn't married. So well, it wasn't necessarily mistress. And, and they recognized that too. And it wasn't necessarily a mistress sort of relationship either. Is They, they were living together and they were presenting as husband and wife. Uh, because of the ideologies of the time. And it came out after the attack happened. No, oh, that's a mistress. Well, not necessarily. It's very archaic ideology, but matches the time frame that we were in. Makes a lot of sense. And that's one thing with Grocer. I was like, okay. And then uh, Steve Boca, I believe, was, was put as druggist. And I had to research what a druggist was. Mm-hmm. So usually I would go into what it was. But it was easier for me to just put pharmacist because that's essentially what a drug is. The correct term. The correct term. Um, A lot. Well, there's a lot of terminology that was used back then that didn't make sense or were not right. Correct. Yes. (laughs) And that's what makes our our jobs here as podcasters with history a little more challenging. Um, Good thing I'm a history freak and I know what Tartarus is. (laughs) Yeah, because I was like, I don't know how to say that word. So there you go. Watch Percy Jackson. If you want to go into your story. Well, um, actually, on my podcast, we do talk a lot about tales of, of haunted places. And there's a reason why we do that, because they're very interesting for history. But many of the tales I found through my research have been exaggerated through the years for many, many different reasons. Now, some of these reasons are to bring in tourists and others are actually for um, to further demonize what happened and the actions that happened. Sometimes it'll be demonizing a group, for example. So in the story I'm going to tell you today, none of this applies. None. (laughs) The the tale I'm going to tell happened exactly how I told you. Um, It's not exaggerated. But the thing is, what I why I love this story is it really shows a case of extreme hatred that was targeted against one family. It shows corruption at its highest levels. And it's truly a story about a community that just developed a taste for blood. But also what's interesting is I'm from Canada and Mm -hmm. a lot of people just presume that we say a or a boot. I don't say a boot. I don't do it. Uh, I don't say A either. Um, that we apologize for everything. That's true. And I'm sorry for saying it. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, people presume we're so nice that nothing bad ever happens here. 
Oh, it does. We have our dark history just as much as everybody else. So this tale actually takes place in Ontario, Canada, where I live. And it starts back in Ireland, though, with a young couple who met and fell in love. And their names was James and Joanna Donnelly. And they were married after a very short courtship in their homeland in 1840. So they had their first son, who they named John Jr. And the three of them immigrated over to Canada. So after they got settled in Canada, the Donnellys hoped to establish a homestead for themselves, their son, and their now seven children that were born in Canada. They chose an area in a township called Biddulph. It's near London, Ontario. So like many Ontario communities in the 19th century, this community dealt with constant crime, ranging from robbery to assaults to murder. And also during this time, bringing anybody to justice was not easy at all because the major uh, the majority of constables were untrained. Um, They're just basically plucked off the street. And most times they were criminals themselves. So also for reasons that there's so many to talk about, but just for this time, we'll just say a lot of different reasons. The courts at the time were not handing out punishments, what people thought were even reasonable. So after they moved to this area, the Donnellys decided to settle on land that didn't belong to James legally, and they became squatters. Now, the land was owned by a company called the Canada Company, and they leased it to a man named James Grace. It was unknown if James actually knew if the land was owned by anybody before he started squatting, but squatting at that time was actually a common frontier practice that was supported by the courts under common law property rights. So in 1856, a man named Patrick Farrell, he bought that land from James Grace. So when Patrick immigrated from from Ireland and he went to take possession of his property, he was shocked to find there's the Donnelly family just squatting there in their house. So he took them to court. And when they were in court in 1857, Farrell tried to get the Donnellys evicted. But the two parties eventually agreed to have James Donnelly keep and reside on 50 acres of land, which was actually far less than what the Donnelly family had cleared over the 10 years that they occupied it. Even though they had an agreement that was made in court, Farrell would vocally attack the Donnellys anytime he seen them in public. So on June 27, 1857, Farrell attacked John Donnelly at a public event with a handspike, and then he died when Donnelly picked up another handspike and just threw it at him in self-defense. But that didn't matter back then. James Donnelly, he just went and hid for the next two years before he turned himself over for trial. Now, James actually was sentenced to be hanged in 1859. But after his wife Joanna submitted a petition for clemency, James had his sentence reduced to seven years in Kingston Penitentiary, which is in Kingston, Ontario. Now, just to give your listeners an idea here, Kingston Penitentiary was kind of like your guys' Alcatraz in the state. So it wasn't a pleasant seven or seven years that he had to do. Now, meanwhile, in 1873, the Donnelly stagecoach line was started by William Donnelly, who was James's son, and it was a huge success. So William managed the company with his brothers, Michael, John and Thomas, and the company started to rival the official stagecoach line that was in the area, and it was in place since 1838. So the competition soon fell under the pressure, and they sold their company to a man named Patrick Flanagan, and this guy became determined to drive the Donnellys out of business. So this status set a stage for a feud between the Donnelly stagecoach and the Flanagan and Crawley stagecoach line, where they burnt each other's property, they smashed it, horses were beaten or killed, the stables were burnt to the ground. Now the community blamed all the violence on the Donnellys, who they called the Black Donnellys, because they're just all such bad people. And this just worsened the reputation. It didn't matter that both sides were doing it, right? All they, yeah. they, it just, they pointed the finger at the Donnellys because, hey, well, their dad did murder, so it's got to be all them, right? 
So as the tensions built towards the family, they started getting charged by a lot of things, including arson, assault, trespassing, verbal assault, attempted murder, theft, robbery, and assaulting a police officer, which is going to be very ironic in a few minutes. So they went to court for all this, and they were found not guilty. So this actually added to the community's hatred against the family because they thought they were guilty. And as we said earlier, the courts didn't issue out sentences as people thought they should. So then in June of 1879, Father John Conley created what he called the Peace Society in the county after he started preaching to his parish about the activity that was occurring and his thoughts on who actually was responsible. No bias there at all. So he asked them to pledge support by having their homes searched for stolen property. Now, out of this group, the vigilante committee they formed up and evidence shows that members of both entities were actually responsible for all the crimes in the area. So the Donnellys, they actually decided not to sign this pledge because they feared, for good reason, that the community would use this opportunity to hide the stolen property on their land and set them up. Now, to make matters worse, James Donnelly, he actually stood up in a church service to denounce that priest who began to preach hatred against the Protestants during his services due to Donnelly's friends were mostly Protestant. Now, James also did a horrible thing in, in the priest's eyes. What he did is he donated money to the building of an Anglican church to support his community. And this just completely outraged society. So this anger actually boiled over February 3rd, 1880, which is the date that this peace society decided to take action. Now, you'll, you'll figure out the irony in their name in a moment. So they had a plan. The original plan was to visit the Donnelly homestead late at night handcuff the male members of the household, then hang them from a tree by the neck until they just confess to all the crimes with the intent to hurt the Donnellys. Firstly, how are you going to confess if you're hanging by a tree by the neck? And secondly, oh, you're just going to hurt them? Come on. So to help with all this, the police or the Peace Society decided to set up surveillance on the property to try to determine who would be home and when and how they could enter the property without being detected. So on February 2nd, James and his son went to town to pick up a guy named Johnny O'Connor. He was a relative of theirs, and Johnny was going to stay overnight the following day to look after the farm. Family went to court to deal with their latest round of charges. So at about 1 a.m. on February 3rd, the Peace Society started getting drinking on just to get their courage before they mounted their attack. When they felt empowered by enough booze, these guys walked to the Donnelly home and surrounded the perimeter of the property. Now, Constable James Carroll then entered the unlocked home. And by the way, back then, nobody locked their doors. They handcuffed um, Joanna and James's son, Tom Donnelly, who was asleep. After he was cuffed, Constable Carroll woke up Tom, saying that he was under arrest, which woke up his mom, Joanna, and her niece, Bridget, who was visiting from Ireland. The commotion also woke John, who asked Constable Carroll what the charges were. Then Tom asked the constable to read out the arrest warrant, and guess what? There was none. So that's when the constable gave his sign to, or to the Peace Society to storm the house with their clubs and pitchforks. Literal clubs and pitchforks. So at this point, the vigilantes started to beat John, Joanna, and Tom. Now, Bridget was able to escape and run upstairs, and she hid. Johnny also hid, but here's what the thing is. He climbed under John Donnelly's bed, but since the men didn't know he was there on the property, they didn't go looking for him. Now, John was hit repeatedly into the skull until he was dead. Joanna fought really hard against her attackers, but she was eventually beaten and killed by Constable Carroll. Tom was actually able to break free from the attackers, and he started running to the front door. As he was running, he was stabbed multiple times with a pitchfork. When he collapsed to the ground, several men carried his body into the kitchen where his parents' bodies were, and they removed his handcuffs. 
After this, they hit Tom several more times in the head just to ensure he's dead. They then moved upstairs and they found Bridget and they beat her to death. They dragged her body downstairs and put it with the rest of the family. Now, when this was going on, one guy, and this is where I have, okay, this is totally over the top for me. They killed and decapitated the family dog because it was barking. Okay, murder's bad, but it's over the top when you take the dog too. At this point in the murder spree, uh, the group realized that they were missing John Jr. So on the fly, they just created another plan to rid the community of all the Donnelly family. So they lit the house on fire with the bodies inside and went hunting for John Jr. When they left, Johnny was able to escape the burning home and he went searching for help. Now at about 2 a.m., an hour later, the Peace Society arrived at Wayland's Coroners where John Jr. lived and they surround his house. At this time, they attempted to get Will Donnelly, who also lived at that location, to come out. Instead of storming the house, they decided to beat Will's prize horse to get him to come out of the house. But the problem here was the barn was too far away from the house for anyone to hear anything. But here's a spoiler alert here. Horse survives, which is a good thing. So one of the men started calling for Will as he was walking towards the house with a shotgun. So it wasn't Will who actually opened the door. It was John Jr. And when he did, he got gunshot wounds to his chest and groin, which caused damage to his chest, his lungs, his collarbone and ribs. He fell to the ground where he was shot seven more times for punishment for what his supposed actions were against the community. Now, Will Donnelly's wife, Nora, she heard all of this and she tried her best to try to pull John to safety, but she couldn't move the body on her own. Now, Will was hiding in a bedroom, but he was able to go look out the window to see who was attacking his home. One of the men he saw was Nora's own brother. Now, at this point, the Peace Society just decided we're getting worn out from all the murdering. And they said, let's just sur survey the perimeter and maybe somebody will come outside. They waited three hours. And after they seen nobody come out of hiding, they just decided to leave. So the next day, Johnny, Will, and Nora all reported the attack and the murders to the local magistrate. Now, even though reports say 35 men participated in these murders, it was only Constable Carroll and five other, other men from the Peace Society that was arrested. So six out of 35, which is a very interesting part of the story. It tells you what the community is thinking at this time, right? At the trial, one of the key witnesses was Johnny O'Connor, who witnessed the massacre in the first house. Now, these vigilantes, they did everything they could to prevent him from testifying, including burning down his parents' house and threatening to murder his family. Now, William Donnelly, he also testified, and he too suffered that type of re retaliation. The defense witnesses, though, were all the friends and family of the vigilante community. So what do you think they did? They backed up the alibis of every single person on trial. Now, due to this, the first trial was a hung jury, with one juror saying that he would not convict them even if he witnessed the murders himself. So during the second trial, the judge gave instructions to the jury that Johnny's testimony was not to be heard at all because he believed it was unreliable. Why? Johnny's mother tried to get paid for his testimony. I really can't blame her here. Her house was burnt down, so maybe I could see it, right? But when it was announced all these men were deemed not guilty, the town decided to have a party, and that party lasted a full day and night. So the story of the Black Donnellys is now a well-known piece of Canadian folklore. However, the inhabitants of this township has tried to suppress this subject due to a lot of the residents in the township actually have ancestors that were directly connected to the murders. In recent years, a lot of books have been started up around these tragedies. Songs, books have been released. Now, in 2007, NBC actually released a TV series called The Black Donnellys that was based on this story. And in 2017, another short film was released about the events. But here's the cool thing. 
you can take a tour of the Donnelly Homestead, which many people report that supernatural events take place on their tours. At the Donnelly Homestead, it's said that items go missing and are later found in unexplainable places. Doors slam by themselves, people hear footsteps from unseen sources, as well as people report being touched by unseen hands. Now, the individuals also claim that to hear voices talking in the middle of the night and hear screams coming from the barn. Now, people also claim to feel like they're being watched from unseen eyes from the barn. So I have a question for you. Why do you think the barn? The barn had, was just a horse, correct? Well, the barn on the Donnelly property is the original structure. The house burnt down, right? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Right. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> but the, on top of this, there also has been reports of seeing shadow people and ghostly figures throughout this property. There is a family who bought, purchased the property right after the deaths, and they decided it got so bad to call a local priest to bless the property and to give the Donnelly family last rites that they didn't get. Now, even with all this happening, it is said to this day, the ghostly activity is still extreme. And this is one of the most haunted places in Canada. Now, in addition to this, the road where the vigilantes walked down is supposedly haunted too. It is said that horses will not go down this road at night on the February 3rd when the murders happened. And if they do, the horses die soon afterwards. It is also said that horses will not even walk on the old Donnelly property at all. And just in case you thought there's not enough ghosts in our story, people report seeing headless ghosts galloping throughout that township and live horses throughout this township go berserk for no reason that they can figure out on a regular basis. My thing is maybe that was revenge for the Peace Society, you know, beating Will's prized horse. Who knows? Yeah, I can see that. See, we're not kind in Canada. That's just a fallacy. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I find interesting is if something with that energy happens, there's going to be a haunting. I've been doing the Valencia Axe murder and of course there's gonna be you know with that energy something comes with it even if it's not I would say not even the spirits of the people but just something that came in with that energy. I 100% agree I don't believe that something that horrible or traumatizing doesn't leave some sort of stain and as said with these tales it's a big one here but it was a lot of bad that happened in one night by guys who just got drunk said hey yeah that's we'll just hurt them a little bit and it ended up with how many murders happening. That reminds me of when the KKK over in America would just be like, you know what, we just want to go kill and be violent. That's what it oh, kind of felt like to me. Just like they were just scare like, them. Yeah, we're right. just gonna get them to talk. Like that's what that reminds me. Yeah, and and the one thing that really struck me the most when I originally was researching this is the fact that the town had a party. When these guys yeah. were declared answered for a full day and night, they were partying. People were dead. You guys killed them. And you just like, let's have a bonfire. The viewers couldn't see my face, but I was like, I was so shocked. I was like, okay. <laughs> that kills some people drinking time. Gosh. Yeah. Hooray, you guys killed. Like, that's wild. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That sounds like, there's like an episode of The Simpsons that kind of reminds me of that. Where they like hid the town's past. <laughs> and then they, like, reveal it. Oh. And and the worst thing is, like, again, because of the actions, it's so, it's a famous story. But when you look at the history about it, it wasn't the Donnellys who did everything. And that's one thing I, I, I discovered with a lot of the tellings that happened after the event, up to, I'd say, even about 10, 20 years ago. But even, I'd say, even, like, closer to the 10, is a lot of the tales that you see in a research is really biased and tries to put the blame on the Donnellys. You know, they were bad people. The black Donnellys were just bad people and criminals. Well, guess what? 
you're, you're the constable killed people. He's a criminal. These guys are stealing stuff. They're criminals too. Bad actions and bad actions never result in a good action. But it's to me just because Don Lee's were did some stuff that's wrong. It never. It never should be this. It never should be just vigilantes going out like, oh, we're just going to scare them a little bit by, you know, beating to death and burning down their house. Because you were saying vigilantes. And when you're saying that, again, TV reference, my mind went to DC, Batman, Green Arrow. Yeah. Thing, like comic book, like they don't kill people. They hurt them. Exactly. They don't kill That's where the irony in the names of the Peace Society, you guys called yourself the Peace Society? And the vigilantes? No, 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 no. You're you're just murderers. You're corrupt murderers who tried to set yeah. some people up by putting some stolen goods there. And when that didn't work out, you just killed them. Let's just the call it what it is. Them. Yeah. I, I was like, the whole town back now, it's in the third party. I was like, what? <laughs> but in the same breath, if this peace society was as big as it was, and even if you disagreed with them, could you at that time, with it being kind of like the wild, wild west out there, and nobody getting proper convictions for crimes, would you necessarily want to speak up? I can see not wanting that, because also, if they were willing to go do that against what family, one family, what would they do against me? The fear. So do we know if the whole town actually supported them? Not really. I honestly would have to say that a lot of them probably did. Um, but also, did they support a killing? No, not necessarily. When you think about that, it could be they were afraid. Kind of remind me of um, Wild West when you're reading. Like when you're reading, I was like, oh, this reminds me of Wild West stories you'd hear from America, where it was like feuding families. Yeah. And then they would constantly be killing each other and they'd be justified because they had yeah. the feud. And the Hatfield McCoys was what come to my mind when yeah, I when I first heard this mind. story. Yeah, it's the same sort of idea. But again, it was a very lawless time, for lack of better terms, during back then. And they didn't have proper law in the area, which is clear because they're hiring criminals. And, you know, the constable kills people. So and they don't get proper uh, sentences to begin with. Like, think about it again. The patriarch of the family was he was self-defense. Right. But he was convicted to hang. And then after his wife put in clemency, Okay, you get seven years. Doesn't yeah. that seem that seems a little off, right? So I can yeah, understand I can understand frustration people have, but frustration never should lead you to murder ever, especially for dogs and horses. No. Yeah, the <laughs> dog. I was like, uh, poor dog. You killed a dog. Even like, in Amityville, in Amity, they did. He tied the dog up outside. Save the dog. Save the dog. No, that's why I had to say, spoiler alert, the beaten horse survives because at least something survives out of this. Well, the horse is also going to be, you know, they're a lot bigger than dogs, too. It, so. it would be harder to decapitate. I agree. Actually, I do remember when I was growing so I grew up in a very rural area of California. And there was a man who raised wolves on his farm and he had a sick horse and he decapitated the horse alive and fed it to his wolf and he got arrested and they like took all his wolves away and that's what kind of reminded me of that is that I remember that happening as a kid and everyone being so like how could he do that just for the record if you're if you're if your wolves are hungry buy some proper wolf food for proper mm -hmm. nutrition but there's better ways than to cut your head off your horse and say hey wolves have some smorgasbord like there's better ways about that uh with yeah. that said it makes you wonder if there is a personality disorder link there or a lot of mental illness <laughs> you know are yeah, you so I mean, are you a sociopath let's just put it out there 12 wolves 
the 12 wolves he walked around town with. That's crazy. I'm just like, you know what? Dog food isn't that expensive. And if you can't afford yeah. the wolves, maybe you should get rid of the wolves in, in, in a nice way. Like, you know, sell your wolves to a nice family. You don't just go and chop up your horse. It just well, seems like, ex- excessive. They were purebred wolves, too. They were, like, super scary. I remember he would, like, walk around and get 12 of them. And I'd just be like, oh, no, I don't want to go near this man. That's a good idea. He has 12 wolves. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so nice to be able to tell a story to your, your, your fans today. And now you get to learn about Canadiana. <laughs> yes. Uh, I haven't done a Canadian story, actually, yet. I might, I might start looking into some more Canadian cases, too. We have some really good ones up here. Honestly, we do. And that's just, just the start of them. I hope my listeners can go over to your channel because personally, I've been listening to your podcast and I really enjoy it. And I just find your voice very soothing to listen to. Well, considering <laughs> I'm talking about dogs being decapitated, <laughs> I think it helps a little, you know, yes. soothing teacher-like voice <laughs> for yes. telling about decapitation. I feel educated after, I feel, not it, on the right things, but very educated. <laughs> although I tell people all the time, it's my job to scare while I educate. That's a good way to look at it. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find your podcast? Well, you can actually find Horrifying History on any major podcast for, uh, provider. And um, coming out, uh, the day that this episode's coming out is another episode of mine. And you guys probably have heard a little bit about it because we're calling it Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? Have you heard of that one before? I have. Well, we do a little bit of a deep dive into it and look at not only just the crime, but a little bit deeper into the evidence and the theories out there of who Bella actually was. You also actually can find Horrifying History on our YouTube channel, which is easy to find. You just go onto YouTube and search for Horrifying History. Uh, But you can not only just hear Horrifying History there, you can actually find our other show, which is called History Cole's Notes. So Cole's Notes, just for useless information, is the same thing as Cliff Notes in the United States. So which is a study guide. We, we, we're asked so many questions, not just like paranormal history questions, but just history questions in general. So I thought, why not just answer them? That's how we started History Cole's Notes. And actually on the day after that this episode airs, it is our last episode for this season of History Cole's Notes. And it's all about the Salem witch trials. And it's more of a deep dive of why, what the theory is on why it truly started. And there's a lot of different theories. And you can also find us on on social media by going on Facebook, searching Horrifying History. You can find us on Instagram by searching for Horrifying underscore History. And we're also on Twitter. So come join us on there by looking for Horrifying H-I-S-T-1. So I'd like to thank you for being on my podcast and sharing such an interesting story with us. This has been Misty Mysteries, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
Thank you all for joining me for our latest episode of Horrifying History. I personally want to thank Keely, who is the host of Misty Mysteries, for this great idea and for all of her hard work behind this episode. You can find Misty Mysteries on Twitter at Mysteries Misty, on Facebook by searching for Misty Mysteries, and on Instagram at Misty underscore Mysteries. You also can find the Misty Mysteries podcast wherever you find your favorite shows. And also, if you haven't done it yet, be sure to remember to hit that subscribe button for this podcast, for when you do, it not only lets other people know about our show, but you download our next episode on its day of release. It's a great way not to miss our next episode. Thank you all for listening again today. Happy Halloween, and until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.